Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in 1 John chapter 1, beginning with verse 5 and studying this morning through chapter 2 and verse 2. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 going through chapter 2, verse 2. The title of my address is, Let God Be True and Every Man a Liar a mandate for global evangelization. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to begin this morning by raising a question. Why do you and why do I and why does the whole world need Jesus both as advocate and as atonement? Why is it that we need him to step in in our place and bear in his body the full weight of the wrath and the judgment of God? The Bible is pretty consistent and clear in the answer. It's called sin. Sin is the reason we so desperately need Jesus both as our advocate and also as our atonement. 2013 is a landmark year in a sense because 40 years ago in 1973, a very significant book came out written by the psychologist Carl Menninger entitled, Whatever Became of Sin?, If people were shocked in his day to hear the title of such a book, I would say today that our modern sensibilities would be quite outraged at such a quaint and outdated idea. Indeed, Menninger was writing not only to critique the culture, but also to critique much of the preaching that he was hearing across the pulpits in America. And keep in mind, that was 40 years ago. 
in a title in, in a chapter entitled "The Disappearances of Sin: An Eyewitness Account," Menninger writes this: "In all of the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, one misses any mention of sin, a word which used to be a veritable watchword of the prophets." It was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely, if ever, heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in all our troubles, sin with an I in the middle? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Wrong things are being done, we know. But is no one responsible? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? The word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? Perhaps we are only more glib nowadays and equipped with more euphemisms. And at the end of the book, he makes this very striking statement that is an indictment on so much preaching today, the pastor cannot minimize sin and maintain his proper role in our culture. Sin, a word that is not popular. Sin, a word that we want to run from. Sin, the reason Jesus Christ came and gave his life as a propitiation for our sins. And the fact of the matter is, we live in a day when people will go to great lengths to hide it, to rationalize it, to deny it. But understand it and understand clearly, when you deny sin at its very core and foundation, you are calling God a liar. You're challenging His Word, questioning His character. And bottom line, you're saying this, you know, really, sin is not that big a deal. And Jesus really did not have to die. I'm grateful that you are at a school that looks at things altogether differently. I'm grateful that we have a faculty that, as we saw a moment ago, gladly appends their name to two documents that are rooted in biblical truth and not modern sensibilities. No, there are seminaries and colleges and universities not very far from here where you'll find an altogether different perspective. Indeed, that perspective is well stated by a feminist theologian by the name of Dolores Williams, who at the Reimagining Conference in Minneapolis, Minnesota, said concerning Christ and the cross, and I quote, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I think Jesus came to show us something about life. I don't think we need people hanging on crosses, blood dripping and weird stuff. And you know what? In one sense, she is right. If we have no sin, then we do not need a Savior. But the Apostle John has an altogether different opinion on this issue. In fact, he understands and makes clear in the text before us both sin's severity as well as a Savior's necessity. And he recognizes very clearly the danger of calling God a liar. And so in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says to his little children, Be on the alert. Be careful. Watch. Find out what a person believes, number one, about Jesus. 
Uh, That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And find out what they believe about sin. That's chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. And it will tell you a lot about them. And so what John is going to do in this particular paragraph is help us understand both the severity of sin and also the necessity of a Savior. And what he sees is, if you think rightly about sin, you will be led to think rightly about Jesus. And if you think rightly about Jesus, you will see your sin and all of the ugliness and all of the awesomeness that God sees it as well. Indeed, you'll see your need for Jesus both as your advocate, that's chapter 2, verse 1, and as your atonement, Chapter 2, verse 2. Now, I teach hermeneutics here along with a number of my other colleagues, and so when we come to a text, we want to look at it very carefully. And one of the things that you're taught in hermeneutics is when an author uses a word over and over and over, it's probably a driving idea in that particular passage. So what are we going to see in this text? You'll see the word sin occur no less than nine times in chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. He'll use the word darkness as a corollary two times in this particular text. And three times he is going to use an if we say statement. And six times he'll use the word if to drive home his argument that we would think rightly both about sin and also our Savior. And so what I want to do this morning is very quickly unwrap this text and build it around three major overarching ideas concerning what our mission is to the world concerning Christ, his cross, and sin. First of all, in verse 5, we're going to see that the world must believe what God says about himself. And there he tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Then secondly, we need to see in verses 6 through 10 that the world must believe what God says about sin. And then finally, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we will see that we must proclaim a message that helps the world believe what God says about Jesus. So what God believes about himself, what God believes about sin, and what God believes about a Savior. So look again with me at chapter 1 and verse 5. The world must believe what God says about Himself. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. I like the way the New English translation renders verse 5. It says it like this. Now, this is the gospel message we have heard from Him. I like that because I think that what John is getting at when he says this is the message, he means this is the gospel message. This is the good news that we did share with the world. And in fact, if you just stay in 1 John chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, he gives you very much the core of this message because he unwraps for us in magnificent detail the beauty and the glory and the greatness of Christ. He tells us, for example, in chapter 1, verse 1, that Christ is that which was from the beginning. In chapter 1, verse 2, he is the word of life. In chapter 1, verse 3, he is the eternal life, the Father, Son, and the source of fellowship. In chapter 1, verse 4, he is the source of joy. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he is our advocate. 
And in chapter 2, verse 2, he is our atonement. And so this is the witness that God has concerning the gospel message. And notice that John says, this is the message which we have heard. And, and the implication is this message is still ringing in our ears. This is the message we have heard from him. This is a message that they received from Christ himself. And then what does he say we do with this message? Keep it to ourselves? Of course not. This is a message that we proclaim to you. Uh, this morning, as I often do, I checked again the uh, Joshua Project, and I was again reminded that in a, the world today, there are almost 7 billion people, 16,500 different people groups, and still in the year 2013, with all of our technology and all of our finances and all of our ingenuity and all of our creativity, there is still more than 7,000 unreached people groups that have not heard this message proclaimed to them. People who have never heard the name of Jesus. People who will be born, who will live, who will die, and they will go to hell, and they never even heard the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's simply unacceptable. This is a message that we must proclaim, not just our, our neighbor across the street, and indeed, we must do that. And, and I will again tell you, one of my concerns for this current generation is that we may perhaps be losing our passion for personal evangelism. Uh, I know that there's a reaction, and there always is, to what are sometimes called can approaches to evangelism. And I recognize that it can be uh, something that becomes sort of ritualistic and can become canned, if you like. But as one man said to Moody one time, I don't like the way that you do evangelism. Moody asked him, well, what is your method? And he says, I don't have one. And he said, well, I like the way I do it better than the way that you don't. And so we need to recognize that this message is one that must be proclaimed. And he then gives us some uh, component of the heart of the gospel, or at least an implication of the gospel. And he tells us, here's the message that we're proclaiming, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Now, I will not take the time, but I did some research and discovered that this theme of God being light runs throughout Scripture. You find it, for example, in Psalm 27, verse 1, Psalm 36, verse 9, Isaiah 60, verse 1, Isaiah 60, verse 3, Isaiah 60, verse 19, Isaiah 60, verse 20, Micah 7, 8, and... Of course, you find it in the New Testament, and in particular, you find it in the Gospel of John. I will slow down and, and note those. John 1, 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And, of course, the true light is the Lord Jesus Christ. John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, and don't miss this because I'm going to unwrap it in just a moment, but will have the light of life. John 12:36. while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. John 12:46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so God, who is light and gives light, has come to us as the light of the world in the person of Jesus Christ. As Isaiah said in chapter 9 and verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
And so John says we have a basic truth to affirm. God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. You know, John unwraps for us something of the character of God several times in his letter by telling us God is something. For example, here in chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. Later in chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 16, he will tell us God is love. And then at the end of his letter in chapter 5 and verse 20, he will tell us God is true. But here he writes literally, God light is, and darkness in him not is none. God is light, and in him darkness not is none. He uses a double negative to emphasize the truth he is seeking to drive home. Now, we know that double negatives are bad grammar, but they are very good theology. And as we saw just a moment ago, John wants to drive home a truth in this letter that runs throughout all of Scripture, and that is that God is light. Now, time to do hermeneutics again. What does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says God is light, and in him darkness not is none. Well, often in the Bible, uh, light stands for that uh, which is holy. It stands for moral purity and, and goodness. Sometimes the word speaks more of the idea of truth or, or revelation. But I believe if you go back to the Gospel of John and look at how John uses the word light there, it informs how he wishes to use the word here. And here's what I think you discover. Not that he is denying that holiness and, and moral purity and goodness and truth and revelation are not also here, but I think what John really wishes for us to understand is light equals life. Light and life are the ideas that he seeks to link together. You say, make your argument. Well, listen to John chapter 1 and verse 4. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the Light of men. John 8, 12. Jesus, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so what I think he's saying is God as light has in his very character and being the very nature and source of life. In our God, there is light that leads to life. There's not even the slightest hint of darkness. There's not even the slightest hint of death. Martin Luther said, there's no darkness in him, not even the slightest. We might put it in modern vernacular, there is no dark side in this God. And so this God is a God who brings light unto life, and it is this God that has revealed himself to us so clearly in Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus himself made a connection here. And there in the Sermon on the Mount, he told us that we too are to be lights, and we're to let men see our light, the, the light of our lives, that they may glorify our God I like what the missionary John Falconer said, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land filled with light. That's why again and again and again around here, we challenge you to pray the prayer, not Lord, should I go, but Lord, why should I stay? And we challenge you to pray and ask God, might it be that you would send me to a people of darkness, to a land of darkness where my light can burn all the more glorious and bright for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Indeed, the missionary C.T. Studd said it like this, Some wish to stay within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I'd rather run a rescue shop within one yard of hell. And so the Bible teaches that we have a God who is himself light, and we as those who follow him are to share that light, and therefore the world must believe what God has to say about himself. Secondly, the world must also believe what God says about sin. And let me summarize this because I could spend a lot of time here and I want to honor our time. But basically, you're going to see through three if we say statements, a tragic digression that takes place when people call God a liar and deny the reality and the uh, severity and the ugliness and the weightiness of sin. First of all, in verses six and seven, we're going to see that you will lie to others. Then in verses 8 and 9, you digress and you begin to lie to yourself. Finally, in verse 10, you go to the ultimate foundation of depravity and you lie about God. You lie to others. You lie to yourself. You lie about God. Look at what he says there in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him... While we walk in darkness, two things are true. One, we lie. Secondly, we do not practice the truth. To say we have fellowship with him is in essence to say, I'm part of his family. Uh, God is my friend. And so if you say, I know God. I have a relationship with God. God is my father. I in the family. We share Fellowship, and yet you walk in darkness. You walk in the world and the realm of spiritual death. Go see Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. John says two things are true. Number one, uh, you're a liar. And number two, you do not live in, you do not practice the truth. But in contrast, verse 7, if we walk in the light, if we walk in the very life of God... As he is in the light, then number one, we have fellowship with one another. And this is so beautiful. He'll even parallel it again in verse 9. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son. He also emphasized that truth back in verse 3 as well. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from not some, not most, but all sin. I like again the way Martin Luther commented on this. It is strange that although we preach about the blood and the suffering of Christ every year, yet we see so many sects bursting forth. Oh, the great darkness of the past. But if we cling to the word that has been made known, we have this treasure which is the blood of Christ. If we are beset by sins, no harm is done. The blood of Christ was not shed for the devil or the angels. It was shed for sinners. Accordingly, when I feel sin, why should I despair? And why should I not believe that it has been forgiven? For the blood of Christ washes sins away. The main thing, cling simply to the word. Then there is no trouble. And so do not lie to others about your sin. Secondly, don't lie to yourselves. Those who live in death and darkness do not just lie to others. 
saying one thing while believing another, but rather they eventually become self-deceived and they lie to themselves. As Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, their consciences are seared as with a hot iron. Here is his second if we say statement, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, apparently some of the false teachers in the first century were claiming sinlessness. Uh, today, you have people that simply say things like, I just don't think sin's a big deal. Or, or they may even draw the, the faulty conclusion that basically we as human beings are good. I remember several years ago being a member of a very large uh, and popular and influential Southern Baptist church. And there was a woman in that church that was over the preschool area, and she actually mandated to those who worked underneath her that they were never to call children sinners. They were indeed to tell the parents and tell the children that basically they were good. Now, I don't know what planet she was from, and I know this, she certainly had not observed my four children. Furthermore, I've watched your children running around this place as well, and they are all prime candidates for the Total Depravity Hall of Fame. Every single one of them. Right now, we're being blessed to have uh, three of our grandchildren over at the house because our son Paul is here in one of our Ph.D. seminars. And uh, you've done the same thing. You've got one of the children there in the floor, and they look at you and grin. And so you playfully say to that child, You come here. What do they always do without fail? Do they come to you? Heck no. They go as fast as they can the other way. They are little sinners, just like you and I are big sinners. And we don't have to teach them to sin. It's just the normal, natural, happy thing that they do. And yet we live in a world that wants to minimize it, that wants to deny it, And I would submit to you that we are in a world of massive self-deception. No, the Bible says if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then one of the most popular and beloved verses in all the Bible, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Spurgeon said it like this, The idea of having no sin is a delusion. You are altogether deceived if you say so. The truth is not in you, and you have not seen things in the true light. You must have shut your eyes to the high requirements of the law. You must be a stranger to your own heart. You must be blind to your own conduct every day. And you must have forgotten to search your thoughts and to weigh your motives, or you would have detected the presence of your sin. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his members. And yes, the Bible teaches that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But verse 9, and here's my kind of paraphrasing of it that might help you grasp it in a new light once again. If we are characterized as those who are continually agreeing with God about our sin, both its nature and its acts, then our God is both faithful and just. He is true to Himself to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
John says, look, there are sayers who cover their or conceal their sin, and they are liars. And then there are confessors who acknowledge and admit their sin, and they are forgiven. And I suspect that John was simply echoing in this verse what you find in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So don't lie to others. Don't lie to yourself and do not lie about God. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Why? Because he says you have sinned. And his word, it is not in us. We must believe what God says about sin. And then finally, the world, and we must also believe what God says about Jesus. And again, if I could summarize, and I could spend really uh, probably several hours unwrapping this. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he wants us to simply understand that in Jesus... We have an advocate. And then in verse 2, he wants us to understand that in Jesus, we have an atonement. Look at it. My little children. It's a term of endearment. He will use it several times in this letter uh, to affirm his love for them, but also to use it kind of as a transitional uh, uh, literary device to move to a, to a related or to a new topic. My, my little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, we know from John's letter that he does not believe that we can be sinless. But John does want us to be motivated to sin less. And so John says, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. But John says, I I know that you're going to. And so when you do sin, do you despair? When you do sin, do you throw in the towel and just give up and say it's not worth it? I I can't win the fight. Well, the fact of the matter is you can't win the fight. But Jesus has already won the fight for you. And so he says, if we sin, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. A parakletos, a, a paraclete. By the way, it's interesting that that phrase occurs five times in the Bible. Four times it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, all in John's Gospel. But here it's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And the word has the idea of a helper. Uh, of someone who comes alongside and aids us and assists us and helps us in our time of need. What is our need? We still sin even after we are born again. Uh, We still sin even though we seek to pursue God and to honor Him with our lives. And so when we sin, we have a helper, we have an advocate. And why is it that He is qualified to help us as our advocate? Because He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. I think again, He may be drawing from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11, where there the Bible says of the servant of the Lord that He is the righteous servant. And so this advocate is a righteous servant, a a sinless advocate, an undefiled advocate, a spotless advocate. And therefore, he can step up and step alongside and help you and help me in our time of need. It's a beautiful thing to know that the Bible teaches that we have both an advocate in our heart, the Holy Spirit, and an advocate in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans 8 says we have an intercessor in our heart the Holy Spirit, and we have an intercessor in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we're reminded at the end of Romans chapter 8 that there's nothing, 
Not a single thing that can separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus. For we have a double advocate, a double helper, always pleading our case and working on our behalf, the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus. And so he is our advocate. And then finally, he is also our atonement. Verse 2, this one who is our advocate is also the propitiation for our sins. It's a very powerful word. It occurs in the context of salvation in four crucial texts in Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, and twice here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and again in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. At its very core, the word carries the idea of a, of a satisfaction, of a satisfaction, which means simply this, that Christ, by His death on the cross, by His bloody sacrifice, satisfied God's holiness and turned away His righteous wrath from sinners. The wrath that should have been poured out on sinners was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that should have been experienced by you and me was experienced by Jesus. The hell that should have been experienced by sinners was experienced by Jesus. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And you notice that the Bible ends in this particular section with an emphasis upon the global extent of this atonement. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. John will echo this again in chapter 5 and verse 9 of the Revelation where he talks about, Worthy you, Lord Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Regardless of your understanding of the atonement, you must affirm to be faithful to the Bible that there is indeed some universal aspect to this atoning work of Christ. No people group, no language group, no culture is removed or hidden from or separated from or denied access to the perfect atoning work of Christ. No, Dolores Williams is wrong when she says, quote, there's nothing divine in the blood of the cross. The Episcopal heretic, Bishop John Spong, is wrong when he says, I don't want a God who would kill his only son. I'll tell you something, I'm grateful for a God that killed his son instead of killing me. I deserved to die. I deserved his wrath. I deserved his judgment. And yet in amazing grace, he poured all of that out on his son. No, Stephen Chalk is wrong when he rejects the orthodox understanding of the cross and calls it a form of cosmic child abuse and says we have at Calvary nothing less than, I quote, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed, a twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge bear to faith. No, it's not a huge bear to faith. It is simply a glorious display of amazing grace that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, pouring out his wrath on Jesus, that he would not have to pour out his wrath on you and on me. I close with a wonderful statement by the commentator and believer Malcolm Muggeridge, who 
lived from 1903 to 1990. And this is what he said concerning our Savior, and I quote, I have looked far and wide, inside and outside, my own head and heart. And I have found nothing other than this man and his words which offers any answer to the dilemmas of this tragic, troubled time. If his light has gone out, then as far as I am concerned, there is no light. Praise God, the light has not gone out. The light has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when you sin, flee to it. You will find there a perfect atonement and a faithful advocate. And then having fled to him for that forgiveness, let us be faithful to take this glorious gospel to the ends of the earth that the light of the world, the Lord Jesus, might be indeed proclaimed to every man, woman, boy, and girl that they too might have the opportunity to come to know what prayerfully and hopefully everyone in this room this morning has come to know in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this passage that is powerful in its communication of your character, your light. In you is not even the slightest hint of darkness. In you is life eternal and life everlasting. And Lord, thank you that in this text we learn about the severity of sin and how sin causes us to lie, to lie to others, to lie to ourselves, and ultimately even to call God a liar. No, sin is a very serious, serious issue to you. How do we know? The cross and the wonderful, precious doctrine of propitiation wherein we are reminded that you satisfied your own justice, you satisfied your own righteousness, you satisfied your own holiness by pouring out your judgment on your Son that we as guilty, helpless, hopeless sinners might be brought into your family as your sons and as your daughters. Lord, that is a great and glorious gospel and one that we dare not keep to ourselves. So, Lord, give us a passion to know this gospel. And then, dear Lord, give us a passion to take this gospel across Raleigh, Durham, across this state, across this nation, and, Lord, around the world that others might see in Jesus the light of life, the light of the world. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at 
www.scbts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.